when people are constantly stressed and having to work and when housing costs are so high, right, you don't have time for community. There are ways that we can and we have to, we have to build community better and we have to be making neighborhoods that build community and we have to be giving people space in their lives to build community. But also, also just the observation that, um, that you kind of made is, and that is living with people is messy. Um, yeah. But I think the corollary to that is that it's worth it. You know, like yes. be, being connected and feeling like you're part of something, it's totally worth the mess. And, and I working, was hoping you would go there next because that is yeah. absolutely the other side. Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is the Sharing Boulder podcast. My name is Philip Ogren. And for episode 16, I spoke with Claudia Hansen Thiem over Zoom to discuss co-housing, cooperative housing, and car light living. Claudia is a regular opinion writer for the Daily Camera, Boulder's local daily newspaper, but is on temporary hiatus from that work while she manages the campaign for city council candidate Nicole Spear. I admire Claudia for the way she shows up for housing justice in Boulder and the way she articulates a clear and positive vision for building inclusive communities in our city. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Claudia Hansen Theme. Claudia, welcome to Sharing Boulder. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, Hi. Please. Hi, Philip. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. Uh, I always like to start off uh, an episode by just having you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about uh, what you do for work or in, in, the, in the housing space. Go ahead. Sure. So I'm Claudia hansen Um, I think a lot of people in Boulder know me through my opinion writing for the Daily Camera. And I have been involved with, I think, a really broad base of um, housing-related advocacy, also land use and transportation here in Boulder. Um, but really just in the last three years, I've lived in Boulder since 2007, uh, when my spouse got a job at CU. And I was not really involved in local politics um, until what is known as the co-op wars, which unfolded in 2017. Um, I happen to live in a co-housing community, which is a type of, of intentional community, um, somewhat shared living space. And I felt a real affinity with folks who were advocating for shared housing here in Boulder. And that was a rabbit hole that I have yet to <laughs> climb back out of. It goes deeper and deeper. Um, and so I have, on the side of being a stay-at-home parent for the last few years, been really digging into housing advocacy um, and all the rest here. Well, that's great. It's it's no wonder our paths crossed because, you know, I've just been trying to dive into this space too. I feel like I'm on a similar trajectory because I moved into Boulder in 2007 and uh, just kind of picking up trying to figure out how I can be helpful in the housing space in the last few years. So that's very cool. Well, I definitely want to dive into the, um, to the co-housing issue um, and the, and the co-op issue and, and uh, make sure we come away with this from this episode, understanding the difference. Uh, but I wanted to 
highlight you also, um, I know you also from the um, Boulder Housing Network newsletter. And so yeah. I assume it's okay to put a plug in for that. Absolutely, yeah, let me, yep. I can share a little bit about that. Um, Great. The Boulder Housing Network is a newsletter that was started by Macon Coles, who's a former member of the Boulder City Council. And he is very interested in getting more um, housing advocates involved in the early stages of housing reviews. Um, you know, housing reviews take a very long time. The process in Boulder can be quite contentious and it's much more common for people to show up in the public process to say no um, or to work against housing than it is for people to come out and share a positive message. Um, so he is using some of his, you know, expertise around the process as a former member of council, um, as a former member of planning board also, I believe, um, and trying to get people involved in those early stages of ad advocacy. Um, I myself had been live tweeting Boulder planning board meetings on, on Twitter for the last year. And so we had a kind of natural affinity here. Um, me trying to raise awareness of what happens really in the bowels of the planning process here in the city. Well, that's very cool. I um, I get the newsletter, and so listeners, please sign up for the Boulder Housing Boulder Housing Network newsletter. It's easy to sign up for. I don't remember how I signed up for it now, but um, and I but I get it. You know, it it seems like it's more than once a month, maybe every week, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it comes out in conjunction with with major reviews of housing projects that go before planning board. So it's not a particularly regular publication schedule. Sometimes those things are happening week after week after week. Sometimes there's some gaps. It really depends on what the planning board and city council agendas are. So yeah. we're trying to cue people in when there's a big project actually coming up for some sort of public discussion. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it. It's a really great way to, uh, you know, like it, these things don't naturally just uh, percolate to the top of your Facebook feed or, or, or the information, you know, fire hose. And so uh, having that newsletter is really useful. I, I personally, it's sort of one of these things that's nagging on my conscience because I haven't really taken action to show up at a planning board meeting yet and, and comment publicly. But it's it's like it's it's on my radar of things to be thinking about. And I understand that it's important. So I really appreciate that you're doing that work. It, it is. And I would also say, though, if we had an ideal set of policies here in the city of Boulder that were getting us good outcomes in the housing space, we wouldn't have to make this appeal so strongly for advocacy. Um, it really is a commitment of time and energy to show up at public meetings, um, particularly if you have to do it over and over and over again for a single project. Um, it really tends to favor people who have a lot of spare time, um, who are potentially retired, who don't have kids at home, you know, who work regular business hours as opposed to evenings. So there are a lot of barriers to participation. I mean, you shouldn't feel bad yeah. at all about <laughs> not being able to do it. Um, but that in and of itself is, is a problem with some of our housing policy here is that, is that it requires this kind of active um, intervention to keep things on track. Well, I really appreciate, uh, you know, it, it takes a village to, to uh, move a lot of this stuff forward. So I really um, thank you for, for the hard work that you've been doing. Um, 
And then also, again, with the daily camera and your opinion pieces, uh, those are just wonderful and uh, uh, look forward to more. I, I understand you're taking a break from that now because- I am at the moment. Yeah, um, I'm spending this fall managing a city council campaign for Nicole Spear. Um, and Nicole is, is everything I would ever want to see in, in a candidate, in a progressive candidate for council. She, um, she's a scientist. She has a mind for policy analysis. She also comes from a place of enormous compassion and empathy. She connects with people. Um, she has been active in the NAACP. She does volunteer work for a local homeless outreach provider. Um, so she's really tuned into communities that are not often represented in city politics. And I really jumped at the opportunity to work with her, but that does mean, yeah, stepping back from having a kind of privileged platform in the community. It's also plenty of work on its own. How, how's the campaign going? The campaign feels really positive to me at yeah. this point. Um, it's it's great working for a candidate who who really exudes a positive message. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm enjoying well, it. I had the good pleasure of uh, interviewing her uh, earlier this summer, and um, I was just really struck by her presence. You know, like uh, she uh, she's both very welcoming and warm but also like she just commands respect and and uh she you know she's not she's someone to take seriously right she's and and i, I don't know i just really admired um uh the way that uh we navigated through lots of issues and she kind of understands what she understands and and she seems like she would be a good person to seek expertise when she needs it and i i don't know i just like i, I like you said, I think there's just so many great things about her as a candidate that it's it's uh, hard not to be excited. So you you will hear no argument from me there. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, well, so um, some of the subjects that uh, I wanted to talk with you about um, include uh, co-housing and co-ops, but also I understand that you're a you're a Carlite uh, family. So I wanted to dive into yes. that, but but maybe it makes sense to to talk about co-housing first, to to get a sense of where you live and also just more generally how it's useful for, uh, you know, pushing housing in and forward in Boulder. So yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe tell us about uh, holiday, and and uh, maybe more generally too what what co-housing is. Sure, absolutely. So I. My family and I live in a community called Wild Sage, which is located in North Boulder in the larger Holiday New Urbanist neighborhood. This entire area was developed um, around 2004-2005, um, with of course a long planning process before it, um, and it was a, a conversion of a fairly large tract of land that was previously a drive-in movie theater into what was supposed to be a complete neighborhood here in North Boulder. And it's quite unique in that it integrated a very large amount of permanently affordable housing. So 40% of all of the housing up here is deed restricted affordable. Um, the holiday neighborhood was developed in smaller chunks, um, each by different developers. And one of those, one of those square blocks is the Wild Sage co-housing community. Um, co-housing is a neighborhood residential model that has origins in Denmark. I'm not an expert on the history of it, um, but the idea is that you have 
um, groups of people that come together to often design their own communities, um, set the rules for them. Um, and then the community itself is also physically designed in a way to promote interaction between people. So the way that we have done this here at Wild Sage in Boulder, and I think is quite common in co-housing developments, are you have some shared spaces in the community. So we have a large shared lawn that we call the, the common green that most houses have quite immediate access to. We have a large building called the common house where we have some community facilities that we share. Um, we have a large dining room and a commercial sized kitchen. We have guest rooms that people in the community can use instead of having an extra room in their house. Um, we have some nice. meeting spaces, we have an exercise room, we have a shared laundry room. So we, we try to do some of these things together as a community. And what that means is that the homes themselves, um, even though they are complete homes, I mean, everyone has a standalone kitchen, you know, you have all of your own facilities. <laughs> you don't um, share baths house... and showers. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not communal living. Yeah. Um, so everyone has a complete private home, but the homes tend to be much smaller than equivalent homes um, because we share a lot of these things. And, and a lot of people have a very small kind of outdoor space associated with their, their home. But again, we're sharing that main lawn. We're sharing a big patio on our common house. So a lot of these things that you often find attached to individual housing units, um, we're sharing as a community here. That's wonderful. Uh, I, I love the sound of that, but but I, I've actually had two conversations this week about HOAs. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what, one one reaction that I have is, well, gosh, that sounds like HOA on steroids, you know, like, I, I mean, like, so, so in, in one case, the conversation was about uh, sort of cynically about HOAs as a as a way for neighbors to micromanage their neighbors, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe just speak to that. Is is the HOA onerous or is it? Do you feel like it's cooperative? Uh, how is it different than standard HOAs, which are mostly concerned with appearances, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question um, because we do, since we have shared facilities and since we share walls. Um, you know, most of our buildings are townhouse structures here. We have to have some kind of legal entity, right? Yeah. To manage these things. And so we are incorporated as an HOA. Um, I'm not sure how common that is for, for co-housing. That may vary by state. It may, you know, vary by the community. But our model is an HOA. Um, I think we're different from a lot of what people think of as HOAs in that we are really committed to self-governance. Okay, and so I think a lot of people think about the HOA as this thing that simply imposes rules, right? Yeah, they send you um, the warnings. They send you the approvals. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And what we really emphasize here is that we are the HOA, right? So there are yeah. 34 households here. Um, everyone is invited and expected on some level to attend monthly meetings. And we talk about what the priorities of this community are. Um, so it's a much higher involvement situation, and that's an expectation when you become a member of a community like this. So yeah, it is that legal structure. We could, in theory, you know, have the rules and regulations and the like, but the way the culture of this community is, is these things get discussed, um, and we do it ourselves. We're not 
we're not delegating all of this to management companies and the like. So it's taking responsibility for your relationship to your neighbors. Cool. Um, so one of my questions about holiday in particular, I don't, I don't have the wild sage block mapped out in my brain. I, I've just mm -hmm. sort of ridden my bike over there and I don't know much about it. I haven't spent much time there, but um, I understand that uh, there was not a lot of parking built. It was, I think maybe you told me that it's 0.7 uh, parking spots per unit. I am like not that. sure what the exact ratio is. I think it's closer to one okay. per yeah. unit of off-street parking. Oh, and it's off-street off-street parking. So there's is there any on uh, oh off-street parking? Yeah, right. And then there's yes. the on-street parking. Correct. Um, and because one one thing I've noticed about going biking through there is that um, there's a lot of cars parked on the street. Like like so, I actually feel a little claustrophobic when I bike through there because there's so many cars everywhere, um, yes. and I wonder if that's just a function of the fact that um, I'm on the I'm on the outside of the co-housing the shared space when I'm riding through the street. So like like for example, the the, the shared lawn that you have is that accessible to the public, or would I normally bump in you know like wander into it by accident? That's a good question. So yeah, you could you could wander through our community. There are connections to the city sidewalks on the outside. It does feel somewhat protected though. And this is a pretty standard design concept in co-housing is that it's it's not necessarily a car-free way of living, but almost any co-housing community keeps cars on the outside. Um, so we do have a couple of parking lots and we do have garages in our community, but they are all on the exterior of the community. And if you um, want to go to the center green, if you want to go to the common house, you are walking on pedways in the community. You are not walking through parking lots. Yeah. Um, and you are also generally not parking directly in front of your own home, right? And that's also part of the design of this community is that you know, even as you're coming in, you're parking your car, you are then walking through the community um, to get to your home and, and you will see people, right? And that's, I think, part of building community are these casual encounters that you have with folks. Nice, nice. Well, that's the, uh, I, I want to live in a community that has just serendipity built into it, you know, where you yeah. bump into your, your neighbors and you make new friends and there's, you, you know, meals happen, or or events happen kind of organically that, that not everything has to be planned and and uh uh so well cool that thanks thanks for sharing that um i i'm always interested in other people's stories of especially uh uh people with families who are are trying to live with less cars mm -hmm. and uh and so that was one uh thing that i heard that we had in common we we went on a long experiment where we went with no cars for a couple of years, um, oh, wow. we, we, yeah. we do have a car now. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, maybe just share a little bit about uh, your transportation situation and the, sure. the handsome theme household. Well, I mean, kudos to you for making it sometime without a car in Boulder with kids because it's, it's hard. I don't it think is, it would really be hard. possible for us. I, I find it funny on some level that, you know, we are considered a car light family. So I have, I have a spouse and I have two children in elementary school and we have one car um, that has always 
been the case. And yeah, we try to bike as much as we can. Um, and that started a couple of years ago, just with me challenging myself to say, well, how much of this could we do without the car? Yeah. Um, my husband has always been a bike and bus commuter. He works at CU, which is three or four miles distant from us, but we're on the skip and the 204 bus lines. So that's totally possible to do from up here. But it was a bit more of a challenge with me moving children around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have a commuter bike. Actually, now we each have one bicycle. We're also not cyclists, if you want to put that in quotes. Um, we're not the people that have a garage full of bikes. Yeah. Um, we don't have a garage, um, which is part wow. of the problem there. Yeah. So we are doing what we can with, with utilitarian bikes. My kids um, both learned how to ride bicycles independently quite young. Um, at age four, they ride their bikes to school every day, weather permitting, and that's about a mile from us. And I take the bus and ride my bike to basically whatever meetings that I can get to, whatever obligations that I have in town, um, again, within reason. I am not a person who rides in snow and ice conditions on the roads. Um, also, if I need to go somewhere in South Boulder, that is a 40 to 45 minute bike ride for me. And sometimes time um, really does become an issue in those kinds yeah. of things. And then of course, moving children around, um, if they can't do it themselves on their bikes, um, we do drive them. Yeah. We're you up have, on a hill. Do you, have a, um, do you have a spot for a passenger on the back of one of your bikes or? Do I do not know, we do yeah, not. Yeah. Um, and when I, when I bought a commuter bike and it was the first nice bike I bought in my adult life, um, three years ago, e-bikes were not as much of a thing. I think at that point, I think the adoption of e-bikes has grown massively, Yeah, really. Um, even in the last couple of years. And it wasn't really something on my radar screen. I see them around now and I'm like, oh my God, if only I had gotten the long tail, right. Yeah. Um, to actually be able to put my kids on the back of it. But now they're also they're getting old enough that that wouldn't even make sense anymore, right? So my eldest is turning 10 soon. Um, she can get around pretty well on her own, but of course it depends on things like street safety yeah, and yeah. overall distance. So yeah, the, the e-bike for the kids is probably, we're getting past that in our lives. So, well, I like having, yeah. I have, we have a couple of e-bikes uh, for, for the adults and, uh, in our family and uh you know it's we do have spot for a passenger on the back of one of the bikes um a trailer hitch for uh mm -hmm. hauling groceries and such and um yeah i think and then we just go more places further right so yeah. more than the kids do so uh having the e-bikes is nice just just as a plug there's um there's lots of different kits that you can get to retrofit your your current you know, commuter bike that you love. So um, uh, you can you can yeah. think about that uh, at some point, perhaps. But um, I appreciate your comment that you're not cyclists. Um, it, it's kind of a funny thing for me because um, <clears throat> I've never done cycling as a sport, you know, to just mm -hmm. go somewhere for the <laughs> recreation of it. Um, or I've done very little of that, that is to say. Um, but because I've spent so much time on a bicycle, like 
everyone wants to give me bicycle themed uh, swag, you know, like a <laughs> yes, t-shirt or a yes. mug or whatever. Like everyone associates me with bicycles, even though it's like, you know, I don't, I don't give you a, a mug that has a car on it, you know, <laughs> but uh, anyways. Um, yeah, I've, I've had the same experience actually. And I, I mean, I put cyclist in quotes there, of course, yeah. because I mean, I am a cyclist, right? I'm a transportation sure. cyclist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's not something that, you know, as you know, a lot of people don't really have a vocabulary for that or a good understanding of yeah. what biking for transportation is. That makes me sad. It's it's something I would like to change. But yeah, it's interesting to me that um, there's these two worlds of cycling that uh, are kind of very separate worlds. The, the the people who are in their lycra and trying to get as far and as fast as possible. And then there's the people who are replacing car trips, you know, and uh, yeah. those are kind of they're, they're two very different uh, sets of people, I think, or sets of uh, use cases. So, yeah, yeah, they certainly can be. Well, um, one one question I had before we before we leave this, uh, have you had any close calls with your kids on bikes? Um. I'm trying to think here and I don't, there has not been anything that has really like shocked me and made me feel like my, my God, you know, that could have yeah, gone what if? Yeah. south in a bad way. I think about it all the time. If you were to, um, if you were to shadow me riding with my kids to and from school, you would hear in my voice and the way that I'm communicating with them constant vigilance right yeah, we have to yeah. ride on 19th street which has portions of it has bike lanes portions don't um it's a very direct route but i'm constantly you know stay on this side of the line don't yeah. don't come up next to that car it might be turning um so so just constantly riding and my my fourth grader it drives her crazy she's like mommy i know um, <laughs> but i'm you know i'm with the first grader too who doesn't yeah. have the kind of constant situational awareness right. and that's that's what i feel like the stress is right is having to yeah. have that constant constant vigilance about what's happening around your kids yeah well there's this aspect of um trying to trying to live your life on a bicycle or as much of it as possible where where you you feel like um, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I sometimes feel like an outsider, uh, you know, because everyone else is in cars. The world is normal when you're in cars. And yes. uh, there's this aspect of constant vigilance. And then there's also this aspect of just like, um, sometimes this is really inconvenient. You know, like I'm just a, yeah. I'm just a crazy person for, for trying to make a difference in this small way, you know, and uh, really I had to just hop in the car and make this easy on myself. That's what, that's what everyone else is doing, you know? Okay. So. Yeah. I, I have a cussed streak where I really have committed to doing certain things and I make rules for myself, right? There are certainly times when, yes, I will, I will drive, but there's whole categories of things where I've said like, no, actually I will not do this if I have to drive to do this thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, I, that reminds me of the, the mindfulness aspect of um, getting out of your car because, because you don't have the luxury of just showing up. One of the things that's funny about driving in a car for me is that I'm always like, wow, this is like instantaneous transportation. <laughs> I can go, I yes. can go anywhere and it's so fast. Uh, 
which I, obviously, you know, the, the world is built around this, this basic idea, but to me, it's like this kind of discovery every now and then. Um, but, uh, um, oh, where was I going with that? Um, oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, oh, well, just the mindfulness aspect of that. If, if, you, if you don't let yourself just drive your, your, yourself to wherever you think you might want to go the next time something pops in your brain of, oh, I want to go somewhere, mm-hmm. um, you, you plan out better the places you need to, to go to. You're kind of, kind of more mindful about the things that you buy and the things that uh, you need to get done and kind of stacking those things up in a way that uh, doesn't just lend itself to like, okay, I got it. I just remembered I got to do this, hop in the car, go do it and then, and then yeah. come home. So I don't know if yeah, that's, if that's familiar to you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it leads you to be strategic. And I've also found like we, we make sacrifices, right? There are things that we don't do um, that I think we would do if, if I was more comfortable just driving everywhere. Like one thing that we've, we've lost, I think um, with the pandemic is I don't, I have not taken my kids on the bus since the pandemic started. And for a long time, I myself did not take the bus um, until I was you know, vaccinated and felt more comfortable about it. So that was our way of, of going downtown as a family. Yeah. And yeah. again, I say I operate by these rules. And one of my rules has always been like, downtown is accessible by bus. It's not a place that there should be a lot of cars. And so I will not drive downtown. Um, so what you see now in the pandemic is, I don't have a way to get my kids downtown. Right. So we don't hang out on Pearl Street. We don't go to the main library together anymore. I can do these things. Right. I take my bike down there um, in the course of other things. We don't go to the farmer's market as a family unit. Um, And that's wearing on me a lot. And I think that kind of exposes some of the, the gaps that we really have here. If you want to talk about really doing car light or car free living is that if, if, if aspects of this chain break, like, yeah, you can't take the bus or the bus isn't doing it for you. Um, you really have to drive to do certain things. Well, I, uh, I totally appreciate that because, um, I really miss riding the bus with my kids. Um, Uh one of the, one of the things that I've observed frequently is that, um, when you drive your kids somewhere in a car, it's often it ha- it takes on this dynamic of uh, me versus them, uh, and and mm-hmm. the, the maybe like a, a not not combative but just sort of like contrarian somehow. And when you're on the bus, it's sort of like we're all in this together. We're doing this, you know, like yeah. it's 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 us it's us against the world more more like instead of me versus them. And uh, I don't know. I just I just. Um, I feel like a great parent when I'm on the bus with my kids, you know, you're just sitting there with, you know, uh, with a kid on either side or whatever, and just, you know, just feeling like I'm in the world with them instead of uh, driving them through it. I don't know. I I really feel that Um, there's a sense of, yeah, of togetherness. Um, I think they they think of themselves more as being in public, right? Which they're not in the car, right? Like any petty family thing um, (laughs) can go very easily from the front door into the car and continue on to wherever you're going. Um, It's a stressful situation anyway, get in your seat, pull yourself in, keep your hands off your sister, right? Um, But yeah, those dynamics really disappear when you're moving around on public transportation. 
Cool. Well, thanks for sharing all that with me. Uh, that was that was fun. Um, I kind of did. You do you have anything else you want to say about uh, Carlite Living or? Um, and again, I know it's it's Carlite is maybe in in double quotes there, but uh, anyways, uh, I I admire you for for tackling that as a as a goal for your family, and uh, hopefully we can get we can talk more families into uh, you know getting on their bikes to get places. So. Yeah, yeah. I think if people see that it's a spectrum, it's not an either or thing. I think that yep. is a way to appeal to a lot of folks. What I wanted to hear about next is the co-ops. So I understand yeah. you're part of another organization. How many organizations are you? Uh, do you have a hand in? You just you just show up um, everywhere. <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to extract <laughs> myself from things, but yes. So, uh, so I am on the I'm on the board of the. Go ahead. Yeah, the Boulder Housing Coalition. Yeah, tell us about yeah, that. Yes, so I'm on the board of the Boulder Housing Coalition. Um, Boulder Housing Coalition is a 501c3 organization that owns and manages cooperative houses um, in Boulder. We have four of them at the moment and have since I joined the board um, three years ago. And yeah, we house, we house about 65 people at any given time across these four houses. The vast majority of folks living in those houses um, are lower income, and we actually are part of the city's affordable housing program. So um, the we would say the, the beds in those co-ops are, are deed restricted in a sense, like they come with, with income limits and asset limits. Um, in the same way that many of the other housing options in the city's affordable program. So you um, said you said four houses with 65 people mm -hmm. in them. So that's um, approximately 15, yeah. 15, 16 people per house. Is that right? Yeah, so we have we have three houses that have around a dozen people. And then we okay. have a larger co-op, the uh -huh. Ostara co-op which is allowed to have up to 26 people, I believe. Um, it's, actually, it's actually an old apartment building um, that, that we purchased and, and remodeled to become a co-op. And, and how did you purchase the building? The, uh, what, what, I was what's not the fun, involved what's the in fun? that. Okay. <laughs> So, so the BHC, when it has expanded in the past, it does receive some money through the City Affordable Housing Program. I see. Um, so the city then gave out at some point in time to create affordable housing, and we are a recipient of those sources. Um, but we are also carrying mortgages on all of our four houses. Um, and since we are not um, private individuals in the real estate market, we are actually getting commercial um, loans for those properties. So we pay higher interest rate than folks who are living in single family homes. We do not get 30 year fixed rate um, amortization on our loans. Um, so that is um, an expense in that affordable housing space that we don't have um, really solid low interest sources of funding. The city funds are great. Um, they tend to get us in the door with projects. Um, but to sustain these things, we actually do have to compete in that commercial loan market. And then you kind of have to, I, I assume to make it self-sustaining, the rents have to cover the, the mortgage as best, as best as you can. And then you fill exactly. in the gaps. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so we have a fairly narrow band of, of uh, incomes that we can then accommodate in these houses because uh, the, our deed restrictions with the city um, mm -hmm. say that, you know, we, we are going to be housing primarily folks who are below 50% area median income, for example. So there's a limit on how much you can charge those folks. Um, and at the same time, yeah, we have to pay the bills on the houses. So there's yeah. the mortgage, there's the utilities, um, there's some management overhead that goes with it. Um, and also trying to build some capital reserves so that we can actually maintain these buildings in the future. So then the the building that was formerly a, an apartment building, I mm -hmm. kind of assumed that that has all the parking it needs and, and there's less cooperative living in the, in the sense that people just have their own units is that is that fair to say um the, no the design is the design is still somewhat communal i believe there's only six off-street parking spaces on that site um that's grandfathered in okay and the building itself was remodeled in a way that it connected um, many of the former units so they're kind of little pods on the inside where there might be you know a small common room with with bedrooms adjacent to it but it is still a shared living room a shared kitchen shared dining room and then there's two small apartments that have i believe separate entrances in that building and that's to accommodate um you know larger households families who may want to be part of this cooperative living structure but who also want a little more privacy cool so yeah i, I was curious about you know some of these so i assume that the, the other houses look from the street like a single fam, like a large single family home. Yes. And then, but but then if there's 10 to 12, uh, mostly adults living mm -hmm. in the house, uh, perhaps there's some children living there too. It, it, it varies from it varies. year to year, yeah, but mostly yeah. adults, yeah. Yeah, um, do, do they all have cars? Are there 10 to 12 cars uh, parked outside on the street or how, how does that work? Yeah, that really, that varies from house to house. And a lot of that has to do with where in the city these houses are located, um, what the local connectivity is, and even what some of the um, city rules around parking are. So our, our houses are in very distinct neighborhoods. If you want to talk about parking and transportation situations, um, the Chrysalis Co-op is just a block and a half off of Pearl Street downtown. And there are not parking restrictions in that situation, but it's pretty clear to anybody who wants to be living down there that you you are competing for a very limited amount of on-street parking if you want to have a vehicle. Yeah. Um, folks there also have eco-passes um, and they nice. have very good walking access to downtown and to see you. Um, so it's my impression that not a lot of folks have cars. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Um, you take yeah, you take another example, we are our newest house called Mango Manor is down in Martin Acres and fairly far south in Martin Acres. Um, that is not an area where people have eco passes. Um, and it's got bus service, but it's somewhat limited. And that house was also created under the city's co-op ordinance, which required us as an organization to have a transportation demand management program. And we were limited um, in the number of on-street parking spaces that our residents would be allowed to use. And so we actually have to screen folks applying for membership in that house to see if they are bringing a private car with them, because there's a limited number of slots that we can actually have 
um, in the house. And so then is, is there a formal car share or is it just sort of like, here's the cars at the house or like, how does that all, how does that all work? Yeah, so residents can actually work that out themselves if yeah. they want to, um, you know, use each other's cars. I believe there is a car share car that is parked um, at or near the Mango Manor co-op. Um, and our, our co-op members do get membership to the car share program. Um, that is part of one of the benefits actually of co-op membership. So we, we do try to create some, some structures and access to shared transportation. Well, that um, that's super interesting to me. I um, I've I've never experienced a, a cooperative living arrangement, and uh, but I'm interested to know more about it. I do. Do you see this as um, so? I understand that this got reformed, quote unquote, uh, a few years ago, mm -hmm. and and also I understand that it didn't do a lot to make it easier to have these uh, cooperative living arrangements. And so what's kind of, can you maybe just give me the landscape of, of what's going on in this space and what changes need to happen so that more people have opportunities like this? Sure. Um, you know, I don't know the old cooperative ordinance particularly well, to be honest, um, but there was a cooperative ordinance in place in Boulder for several decades, I believe, um, that kind of outlined what are the requirements to be a co-op. Um, and it resulted in essentially zero co-ops ever being created. It was quite difficult to do. Um, that law was, was rewritten in 2017. It is still very difficult um, to create a housing cooperative. The, the entire premise of why would you even need this policy um, is that Boulder has quite restrictive occupancy limits um, on most homes and co-ops our co-ops exceed that essentially. Um, you know, to have a viable co-op in most cases, you're talking about six or more people um, living together. City of Boulder, even in high density zones, it limits um, your occupancy to four people. And in most zones, it's actually three people unrelated. Um, so that, that was the logic for even having a co-op ordinance to give some number of people the opportunity to, to basically share at a higher level. Um, but of course, residents, um, there was a lot of pushback saying, well, we don't want just, we don't want just anybody sharing houses, right? Um, I think there's a lot of fear in town of student rentals being, you know, over-occupied and the like, um, but that's something that the folks who crafted the co-op ordinance, they, they wanted to, they wanted to limit, right? So the, the whole discussion was about, well, how do you know if something is a legitimate co-op? whatever a legitimate co-op is, right? Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the co-op ordinance um, has to do with determining if you're a, le a legitimate group of people. So it requires people who want to have a co-op to, um, to form some sort of a legal entity, such as an LLC, um, to be sharing bank accounts. Um, it requires a lot of applications and reviews of the property that you want to occupy. Um, is it actually suitable safety-wise for the number of people you want to have there? 
Do you have a transportation demand plan um, to make sure that not all the residents are parking cars there? Do you have a contract with a trash hauler? Um, a lot of these things that I think were, they, they came out of people being worried about nuisance properties and they decided to say, we're gonna regulate co-ops in this way. Um, so the co-ops have to go through an application process every two years, they have to get that renewed. And it's, a, it's an extensive process to get certified as a legitimate co-op. Um, you also have to have the approval of an expert cooperative housing organization, of which the BHC is one. But if you were just a group of, of friends um, who wanted to form a co-op, you would have to get some external group to validate you, to say, yes, we've vetted these people, we've done some training with them, they are a legitimate co-op. So that's one side of starting a co-op. The other side is, is finding the money and the property to do it. Um, and that is also difficult. Well, it's funny. I, it seems like it's, it's hard enough to get one or two people to, to live with you uh, uh, peacefully, you know, and in, 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 yes. in, in a productive collaboration, you know. So, you know, I can see that the challenge of having 10 to 12 people plus all the bureaucratic layers, uh, it seems like a, a pretty onerous. So I guess- It's a hard thing to start. I would say yeah. once you establish it, right. um, you know, that group is not turning over fully all the time, right? You have some continuity in it. You yeah. have, you know, a set of, of rules and expectations and bylaws that people who subsequently move in um, are subject to. But the startup is really, really intense. And if you couple that with having to navigate the Boulder real estate market, um, you start to understand right. really quickly why we have not had new co-ops forming. Well, I'm curious to know if, if bedrooms are for people uh, passes, if, if this makes it easier or harder for co-ops. Yeah, we've had yeah, some maybe. informal discussion about that. And I still feel like they're somewhat different entities. Yeah. Um, so bedrooms are for people, I think, is a very modest reform right. um, that, that really deals still with fairly small groups of people, right? Um, yep. yep. I mean, maybe, maybe five, maybe six, but usually, maybe five, usually maybe four six. or five. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So not significantly different from the, the legal roommate situations that people already have. Um, a co-op can be a different beast because there really is this, there's a longevity to it, okay? It's, yeah. it's an institution. It's not just a one-off collaboration of people often. Um, and there, there's often a commitment to doing much more as, as a group, as a collective. Um, and so it is a fairly intense form of living. And yet there's people that, that excel at it. There's people that really want to learn that way of living. Um, and yeah, and, the, and the, the houses that we have, like there is, there is a minimum number of people to really have um, a functioning sharing system, right? If you wanna talk about sharing labor in the house, really spreading costs out over people, um, having a good community culture that sustains itself. Um, yeah, doing that four or five people together that bedrooms would allow doesn't really get you to the level of the kind of, of social cooperative that we are working with. Well, that makes me think of, a, I don't know if this is a comment or a question, you may not be able to speak to this, but I, I would just, you know, just on the face of it, I would think that if you live in a co-op, you have to be a really pro-social person who, 
who knows how to get, who's thought carefully about how to get along and how to be in community. And um, like, uh, you know, if you live by yourself, you can have all kinds of little habits that would grate on others that nobody cares because you're by yourself. But, um, you know, I assume that, I assume that people who live in co-ops are, must be the friendliest people you could meet. Is, is that true? <laughs> is it true? I mean, I should say, I mean, there's conflict everywhere, Philip. Yeah, and yeah. you you don't get away with that. You don't get away from that, even in very pro-social groups of people. It is hard to live together. Um, but you know, you and I know that living with kids with and, traditional families, yeah. right? Um, conflict is a very human thing. Um, certainly folks come in with the intention of of living cooperatively, go along, get along kinds of things. Houses definitely struggle though with what are the real expectations, you know, where where do boundaries lie? How do you deal with minor disagreements? And, you know, the BHC as an organization puts a fair amount of resources into helping people learn these kinds of skills, right? Because we, like in American society, a lot of people just do not have these sorts of skills. This is not the way we were raised. Um, it's not the kind of community that most of us grew up in. Um, and so people have great intentions of trying it, um, but they don't necessarily know in advance, well, how's this actually going to work out? So we, we do training of peer mediators in our system. We have um, a series of trainings every fall having to do with things like um, anti-oppression, um, nonviolent communication. So all sorts of these things that you actually need to really intensively live with people. It's not like we just put people in a house and say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you're okay, your well, people, you know how to do this, right? <laughs> um, and I yeah. think on some level, like, a lot of us would be better off having these kinds of trainings, right? Like, yeah. I feel like even, you know, a lot of our residents, no, they're not going to spend their entire lives living in shared housing situations, but they're actually getting skills there that are extremely useful for navigating this question of how do we share, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've often joked that no one, no one irritates you like the people you live with. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Going, moving in with new people won't won't change that. <laughs> you know, uh, it could help in, in some yeah. situations. But um, um, yeah, you know, we have we have plenty of conflicts in co-housing as well. Even though we can, you know, in Wild Sage, we can retreat to the privacy of our own homes, right? Yeah. Like I have my own door, and I can close it, and I can pull the curtains, and I don't have to talk to my neighbors if I don't Today. want to. <laughs> Today, yes, we still have conflict. Um, sometimes it really sucks. It is hard, um, but but it is such a overall supportive place to live and way of living to know that you are surrounded with people who know you, right? They yeah. know that you're there. They see you. They are available. Um, and that, that has really come out for me in the pandemic. Right, because there was especially this time earlier in the pandemic when we really were, a lot of us really were isolated, right? Like everything was closed. You're working from home. Your kids can't go to school. Um, businesses aren't open. It was still spring, like we had snowstorms, right? And so you could re really feel shut in. And here we could just, I could go out on, out on my porch and I could look out and say, oh, there's my neighbor walking their dog. Let me say hello right? Um, or people that would be checking in. We were checking in on each other, folks who were living alone. Like, how can we help? 
you know, people, we have an email list, you know, when somebody's like, I'm going to the store, you know, my God, it's scary, right? I'm going to go to the store. Um, can I bring things back for people, right? So there's yeah. these, yeah. there's these networks um, and that's they true. happen because we see each other on a regular basis. I think that's really the key to it is that you have this kind of constant drip of casual interactions um, with the same people over and over again, right? So they're familiar, even if you don't know everything about their past, even if you don't know all the gossip in their lives currently, um, you know, you see them on the sidewalk every other day and you yeah. say hi. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I, um, I, I love people and I want to think of it. I want to, I want to have a city where people feel connected and feel included and, and feel like they have that kind of resilience that you just described where, you know, um, you know, people do favor, we do favors for each other or we, um, you know, help, help in a crisis or whatever. And, um, you know, as a, as I, I really admire you as a pro housing advocate that, that you also have this kind of realistic sense about what it takes to have um, community and, and, you know, you, you can't just, you can't just put structures together and, and, and assume that a community will just take root. No, but you're, you're getting at something really important. I think in, in housing politics, we, in Boulder in particular, we're focused a lot on like, let's just, let's get it built, right? Like that is, that's the hurdle. That's the hurdle yeah. we have to get through, get this thing approved, right? And I think that is extremely important. And it, and we are in a situation where we have to do that. But if we can get beyond that moment of like emergency to say, there are ways that we can, and we have to, we have to build community better. And we have to be making neighborhoods that build community. And we have to be giving people space in their lives to build community, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's that's another thing we notice here, right? When when people are constantly stressed and having to work and when housing costs are so high, right? You don't have time for community. No. Right. If if you are stressed just by like trying to to survive in Boulder, um, yep. if you have stretched to get your housing, you don't have time to do this stuff. And so that's another side of this entirely that goes way beyond even just like how you design neighborhoods. It's how you actually support people in having balanced lives. That, uh, that sounds like a great closer to me. That was, <laughs> that, that really, you know, kind of, kind of summed a lot of things up. Uh, but I do want to just give you an opportunity to, uh, is there anything, any, any other parting shots that, that you have that you that you thought about that you'd like to bring up just say uh, like a common thread on all of these topics that we've talked about um i think is this idea that somehow you know people like you and i philip we, we talked about like feeling on the outside of things like oh this isn't what normal people do right you know we're we're these we're these weirdos right biking around um i'm a weirdo living in an intentional community i consider myself actually to be a pretty normal person and i'm putting yeah. all these things in quotes uh -huh. um but my theory about things like community living especially the way that i'm living it is that there are so many people that could do this that would thrive doing this if it was more available to them this is my operative theory about co-housing because I never set out to join an intentional community. There yeah. are people that set out yeah. to do that, right? And they make it their mission. Like, I'm going to find a community that I fit in. I am somebody 
who, who shares, who does intentional community. That was never me. That was never my husband. Folks just looking for a place to live in Boulder and we found this. And I think it, I think it works. And people that we talk to who have never seen themselves in this space, when you explain to them how good it can be, how supportive it can be. They're like, um, Hey, how do I, how do I sign up? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's hard to do, right? Because we make it hard to create these kinds of communities, but that is my theory. Um, Maybe that's just me trying to, you know, make myself feel good and like I fit in, but that if, if we had more of this, more people would be like, yeah, of course, this is what we need and more people can do it. I love that, you know, and, and I can't help but just contrast what you just said with, the, the promise of suburbia, which has been such a lie, you know, that you're going to have this perfectly ordered life in this, in a nuclear family with the, with your own property and your own space, and it's all yours, you know, and I, I, I know I'm being kind of um, uh, g- giving it a bad angle, but, but we really have a, a problem with our mental health and the, the sense of isolation and disconnection and I just really believe firmly that we need to figure out how to live in ways that are just way more connected and communal and uh and that Amen. we have you know when, when I think about um what the purpose of our economy is um I think we have we have so much room for growth in the mental health sector and um and in the uh um building great places sector and uh, I think between those two things, if we can if we can focus on well-being and 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 providing great places to live, um, from that sense, I think we can have you know optimistic economic projections. I, I think this whole notion we're going to uh, you know burn it all down to keep the current economic engine going is uh, is 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 uh, run racing to the cliff. So yeah, it's. It's disappointing. <laughs> for, for sure. I kind of I kind of started a new angle on at the end of this conversation. But um, hey, well, we'll Claudia, just have to do this again. Sometime, yeah, right? exactly. Claudia, thank you so much for taking time. And I really appreciate your perspective on on co-housing and cooperative housing and car light living. That was that was really great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Philip. This episode of Sharing Boulder was produced by David Adamson and Philip Ogren. Sound and video editing was done by Philip Ogren. The intro music was sampled from Osladum by Gilberto Gill and is available for use under the Creative Commons Sampling Plus license. Please visit us at sharingboulder.us for show notes and previous episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us by sharing this episode with your friends and family. Keep sharing, Boulder.